I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8. And I'll invite you to go there, not because we'll be there particularly soon, but that's my commitment to tell you we'll be there, all right? Uh, a couple of other things we want to talk about on the journey uh, to, to where we're headed. I want to thank you for your listening to all those announcements, even as many of you online uh, join us. Thank you for that as well. Uh, this uh, the celebration of the, the last Sunday evening with Thanksgiving here, and then also on Thanksgiving Day with uh, Sean Tibbetts uh, was was a, a really a big deal. I hope you realize that even as God has brought us a couple of churches to step alongside and to help in ministry, and some of our church family in each case is now there to those different places north and then south, helping in ministry on a weekly basis. Our our staff preaching in those different places. Uh, both of those events you just heard about, the Thanksgiving Day and then the carol sing, both of those are, are steps for congregations who are kind of working their way forward. So, so do something, and do something to care for others. So Thanksgiving Day, that was a really good, a good step in that direction. So fantastic. I hope you realize the significance of all that. And as you look around and see our staff coming and going, be aware, every single Sunday, uh, we are preaching in three places. And uh, some of our folks, you say, where's so-and-so? Well, they're probably serving at one of the other places. So good, really, really good. This morning, as you know, we begin Advent season together. Not every church, uh, perhaps, that we've attended uh, has celebrated Advent in the way that we do here, but it's on purpose. We, we want to make the, the Sundays of Advent a part of our teaching, of our teaching approach. And so we tie that in with the Christmas production that you're going to see in two weekends. The, the four Sundays of Advent, each year we do this. Uh, the four preaching Sundays tie in with the program. Uh, it's a teaching approach that gives us seven years. This is the seventh year out of, uh, uh, of, our, of our rhythm, okay? We do seven programs. This is our second cycle through. So that as a church family, we'll remember again the high points of God's story of redemption. And so next year, we'll go back to uh, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and that part of the beginning of telling the story again of, of, of redemption. So anyway, that's kind of what's going on. And we'll be back in our preaching series in 2 Corinthians on New Year's Day. Okay, so we haven't forgotten. It's just that during Advent, we, we take a bit of a different approach to what we're doing. The candle lighting, the scripture reading, I hope you love, as I do, the rhythm that this provides uh, each Sunday, I can tell you, the first Sunday of Advent, I know we're going to read the prophets. I know we're going to hear from Isaiah. I want to hear that. And each Sunday thereafter, the rhythm described on the back of your bulletin, you know, what happens next, what happens next, the telling of the story of what God has done in, in caring for us and sending a Savior, uh, so good that we can remember this. Now, this, this year, of course, as you've heard in the little cards in your bulletin remind you, our program is entitled The Peace of Heaven. And this seventh part of that teaching series then looks back at the story of redemption from the, the vantage point of heaven. And today we're going to do some of that as well, read some of the things in the book of Revelation that God's people are saying when they're home with him. What's on their lips? What, what songs are they singing to God and about him? What is celebrated? What is remembered? So we're going to be looking at some of that together today, both for uh, the good of all of us as adults, but for all of our children as well. 
Well, your sermon notes are in front of you, and um, they give you a bit of, a, of, of what I just said. And then if you look at the part called today's texts, okay, we're going to, again, we're going to be in, in Romans chapter 8 in a minute, but I want, to, I want to just lay some groundwork with you here, okay? So a, a journey into a theological classroom. Uh, some things I know are very familiar to some of you, as some of you have been to Bible college or seminary, others of you less so, no harm, no foul, either way. But some definitions, I think, that would be good for us to be all on the same footing here. In, in the Bible, and when we study the uh, theology, one of the, one of the cool words that often shows up is the term eschatology. Okay, eschatology is the study of last things. You learned in eighth grade or sometime when you studied biology or geology or some other ology that that little part means the study of, right? The study of the earth or the study of life or the study of something, and so eschatology is the study of last things, eschatos, uh, the eschaton, a Greek term. So the study of last things is what theologians speak about. And in that category of theology, we sometimes speak of, as is here in front of you, individual eschatology or final and ultimate eschatology, often ways people think about that. So under individual eschatology, are you stand with me? I was like, wow, I thought we we're going to get a sermon. I didn't know we we're going to go to like seminary or something. It's all right. It's going to work out. I promise. But under the individual part, it's a reminder to us of, of, of what Jesus said, for example, in John chapter three, John chapter three, verse 36, as John tells the story of Jesus, whoever believes in the son has everlasting life. And the one who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. A sobering verse that that reminds us that in humanity, please get this, there are those who know Christ as their Savior. They're trusting Jesus as their sin bearer, the one who was the substitute for their sin. He paid the price for us. And those who really just don't, they're maybe trusting their own goodness, hoping someday to be good enough to earn God's favor, or they just don't believe that I, there's anything after death. Some of you may be in, in that category too, or you're figuring it out. But the Bible defines these two categories, the one who believes in the Son, the one who trusts Christ as Savior, has life, eternal life. And, and those who don't, those who have turned down God's offer, or said later, or I have a better plan, or that doesn't work for me. But basically, they've turned it down. It says they don't have life, but the wrath of God abides on them. Sobering words should be, if you're paying attention here. Now, a couple of other verses I've given you here, and I just mentioned them for you. Uh, verses that think about the one who knows Christ as Savior. Okay, so what does the future hold for that person? 2 Corinthians 5.1 says this, For we know that if this earthly tent, this temporary dwelling, this body of ours, if it's destroyed or if it's torn down or what it means is dies, we have a building from God, Paul would say, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So when this body is done here, this is what the Bible teaches, for those who know Christ, When this body is done here, when we die, Paul says, we have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, a a, a new body in the presence of the Lord, a very real uh, existence. So that's what the Bible teaches for those who know Christ. Similarly, Philippians 1.23, the apostle Paul wrestles with these things a bit, and he says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. 
He says, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain here in the flesh is more needful for you. So because of that, I think I'll stick around as long as God lets me stick around. But I'm most captured by the fact that he says, I'm hard-pressed between these two. I long to depart and be with Christ. He uses words we wouldn't often say. Now, uh, this last year, I know I've referenced it in other sermons, but one of the things I did this last year was to read a a book from one of the old Puritans, Richard Baxter, among my reading, uh, is attractively called, by today's standards, The Dying Thoughts of Richard Baxter. Like, wow, that'll, that'll really sell books. But I don't think he intended it from a marketing angle. Uh, but if you, if you find it, you find it on, you can get it uh, on your Kindle or something like that. The Dying Thoughts of Richard Baxter. It's only about 100 pages. Old English. So, you know, 400 years old or so. But he's, he's, he is thinking through Philippians 1 from the, from the vantage point of one who, at that point in his life, was dying. I think that was probably his last book. The Dying Thoughts of Richard Baxter. He walks through Philippians 1. I long to depart and be with Christ. This is far better. And then he talks about why. Why is it better? Why would I be willing to set this aside and be with him? So these are things some of you think about for a whole variety of reasons. Or you have thought about this last year because maybe you've said goodbye to somebody you love this past calendar year. The dying thoughts of Richard Baxter. So individual eschatology, there's that category. You know Christ or you don't. Now, under final or ultimate eschatology, I'm reminding us of this. The Bible speaks of a final day when everything is finally in subjection to him. And I give you a couple of verses here, certainly Ephesians 1 verse 10 from the NLT. I like the way it's worded. This is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Now, I want you to hear as well uh, the text that I've just given you the reference for. And again, I promise we'll be in Romans 8 in a minute. But 1 Corinthians 15, all this is preliminary to that. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, from this chapter that we often describe as the resurrection chapter, you, you should just know what this says. The Bible says it real clearly. The Bible is, right at this point, Paul is talking about the, the resurrection of Jesus and the effect of that, meaning if you know Christ is your Savior, your death is not final either because of what Jesus did. Your death is not final because of Jesus who conquered death. Now, he enters into a little bit of discussion with those who say there's no resurrection. Get a, I mean, get a, you know, kind of a reality check here. When you die, you die. So he's entering into this discussion. But then there's a point here, and I'm just going to start reading this little paragraph. Listen carefully. He says this, For in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He's writing, of course, to a Jewish crowd. There's a feast of first fruits. It's like the, the first apple you pick off the tree and say, Ah, and look at all the others to come. See, it, the first fruits is the first picking of something with a promise of more. That's the idea. And in a Jewish context, Old Testament describes the feast of first fruits. First fruits. So he uses that. Christ then, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that would be Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That would be Jesus. Sometimes called first Adam, last Adam. As in Adam, he says, all die. Indeed, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last one into the lake of fire, death itself. And I'm, I'm, I'm just wanting us to see this. God has all of this in his very capable hands. Every man, woman, and child who's ever lived is in one of those categories, trusting Christ as Savior or, or declining, or shall I say rejecting that offer, or just flat out not believing it, which is kind of the same as rejecting it. So individual eschatology. And then final, there's coming a day when all things will be brought under the authority of Christ. Here, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Okay, with all of that, are you ready? (laughs) We're going to go to Romans 8. Now, as you do that, I'm going to pick it up in verse uh, 18. Uh, and I want to think with you about this text, and then we'll step into the book of Revelation as well, those two major texts today. I want to tell you ahead of time that this, in verse 18, this glory that is to be revealed to us, as we'll read in a moment, we don't live in that final day yet. We don't live in that final day yet, but as I, as I put on your sermon notes here at the bottom of that first page, all through the Bible, the music of that final day is playing at times in minor keys, but one day in a mighty crescendo. I, I, I want to just plant that, that analogy in your mind this morning, the music. Because all through the Bible, the music of the final day is playing. You just may not notice. All the way through from the beginning to the end, the music of redemption is playing. If you are a musical-oriented person, you understand uh, some of the great uh, musical productions that have been done down through history. The analogy works better for you than if you don't think that way. Uh, this is the time of year I listen to more classical music than other times in the year. Uh, some of you abhor classical music, and to sit through a full... Uh, orchestral production would be uh, tantamount to, to, to torture, and I apologize for that. But uh, for me, at the holidays, sometimes to listen to Tchaikovsky, Corelli, Vivaldi, uh, certainly Handel, uh, Torelli, some of these wonderful works, Swan Lake, some of these that have, have beauty to them apart from words. Um, you felt the music a little while ago, didn't you? The richness of a cello. You feel yeah, you, 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 it's, it's visceral. Okay, music communicates. And I'm saying this, and then we'll read the text. The, the music of redemption is playing through the Bible. At times in those dark, sad tones, I'm always struck by how music alone can bring a person to tears. And it can bring a person to laughter and joy. Music alone has power. Okay. And I'm saying the music has been playing from the dawn of time. The music of the final day. In a bit, we're going to read the crescendo. Okay? So, so that's why I mention it now. Brace yourself. We're going, to, we're, we're going to move from some of the, the more somber tones to the great crescendo of triumph. And I, I'm going to give you one quote that I, I remember from some years ago as watching an actual videotape that tells you it was a while ago. Um, of Russian believers describing music that was written by them. 
not, not American music that they would sing, but Russian-written music. And one of them said this. You'll notice that most of our music is written in minor keys. Reflecting the deep sorrow of my people. Talking about believers for whom grandfathers or uncles were imprisoned for the gospel. Disappeared as preachers. People of faith. Much of our music is written in minor keys. Reflecting the sadness of my people. Not forgotten that. Think, wow, how interesting that even in their hymnody are reflecting sadness. So I want to read Romans 8. I promise. Here we go. Romans 8, verse 18, and I'm going to read down through the beginning of uh, verse 31 and into that bit of that, that paragraph to follow. But hear God's word then. The peace of heaven, he shall reign forever and ever. Paul says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is, believers in Jesus, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit, that means the the Holy Spirit of God here, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn that is preeminent in first place among many brothers. And here, correctly, you would translate brothers and sisters as the NLT would reflect. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then he says, and what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all things? And on he goes. I can hardly stop that paragraph. Now, my focus really comes back to verse 18. Um, 
I have this, of course, on your sermon notes under the heading, All Creation Groans, and so do we. The music is playing, and it's in minor keys here. Uh, The analogy in verse 18 that Paul uses by the words that he chooses, it sets up a comparison. Uh, We've all, at some point in our life, even if just on a movie, have seen those old scales where you weigh things, you know, you put a pound on this side and you hopefully get a pound of sugar on this side. And in some of the movies, the, you know, the shop owner puts his finger on this side or this side and something's skewed. And uh, there's a weight though. There's a balance. And the analogy here is Paul would talk about the comparison. It's hardly worth weighing against. He says the sufferings of this present time are not worth weighing against all the glory that will be revealed in us. That is, if you were to take all the loss and sadness that is yours, and that's not to minimize it. For some of you, it's a big pile. If you were to place that all on one side of the scale and then place all of the glory that is yet to be revealed on the other side, the glory of tomorrow would so far outweigh the difficulty of today that he says it'd be hardly worth comparing. Now, that, that's a promise to those of you who today don't live in the glory, you live with the weight. Even if you weigh the last year, some of you, even just the last year, has brought sadness or loss. For some of you, it's a longer-term journey. There are things that you carry the rest of your life, and you will, that are part of that weight. And verse 18 then just says, if you weigh it with the glory to come, the glory that is to come will far outweigh all the difficulties of today. Okay, more on that as this plays out. So Paul is describing the reality of the, the, of, of the, the difficulty, the groaning. In fact, I, I've heard from another a person describing this text as three groans and then glory. There are three groans mentioned. Three groans and glory. I think that's a good synopsis of this whole paragraph. So he talks about creation, creation itself, the inanimate objects, the, non, um, the, the non-persons out there that make up the whole universe. He says, subjected to futility. He's describing here what the Bible explains in the book of Genesis chapter 3, what we often call the fall. That is when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it didn't just separate their relationship with him, though it did that. It messed up the whole of the world. Creation was subjected to futility. This is part of what we call the curse in theological terms. Everybody should know about this. I think we know it even if we can't describe it. The world is broken. What is that, a shock? People get sick and die and there are inequities and things aren't fair and there are wars where innocent people are hurt and injured and killed and assaulted and all kinds of things and nothing seems to fix it. And and people don't have enough food or money and relationships are broken. And look around, I mean, our own lives, let alone the things that you struggle with as a person inside. All of that creation itself is described here as groaning in verse 22. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth together until now. Going back to, to Genesis 3, you remember that when Adam and Eve sinned and God pronounced the results... So you don't want me to rule over you? Come on now. Here's the way it's going to look. Don't blame me. I didn't do this to you. 
today. People, if there's a good God, how come you can stop right there? No, the world God created was Genesis 1 and 2. What happened in chapter 3 is what happened when people said, I really don't want to do it your way. I kind of like my own way better. By the way, who are you to tell me what to do? You know, God said it this way. I prefer to think of it like this. All of those things described in Genesis 3 have helped the world to become what it is today. I don't like your way. I think I'll go mine. And so creation subjected to futility. For Adam, you recall, uh, God says, because of this, uh, it's, farming is going to get harder. Your little garden is going to grow thorns and thistles. Tansy ragwort, congratulations. I'm assuming dandelions. I know you can eat it, but I consider it a weed. Uh, mosquitoes. I know they're part of the food chain, but I'm suspecting that they came as a result of the fall. At least the part where they eat you instead of the animals. They should eat the animals. Uh, be content with this. Biting flies. Noceums. Can I go down the list of other things that would creep you out? I, I just assume that a lot of those things are part of the curse. At least the fact that they afflict us. Okay, creation groans. It's broken. The genetic chain. Birth issues. Sickness. Dementia. Cancer. Death. And all manner of other things that we call problems, sicknesses, disabilities, anything away from what God originally intended. I think it's the effect of sin, just like a whirlwind working through humanity. And the world itself is broken. And there, listen, there will be no repair of the world until this day. There won't be. All the education, fix the economy. Oh, I know, those things, I'm not saying they don't count. Yes, it can increase people's thriving and so on. But I'm saying this, the whole creation, it's because it's in the Bible. That's why I know it. It's in the Bible. The whole creation groans as in the pains of childbirth together until now. That's the first groan. Creation subjected to futility, not of its own will. Creation didn't ask for it. The second groan is in verse 23. Not only creation groans, we groan. This... this this is a statement of reality that I hope brings comfort to you. Not only creation, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that, that is, if you, those who know Christ as their Savior, even we groan. So to know Jesus does not exempt you, doesn't give you a pass. Life's going to be better now. Oh, it will. Well, maybe because you know you're forgiven by God, but you're still living in this world where things break and people die. It's not fair, and it shouldn't be this way, and you're right. It ought not be this way. I know. My heart, as with yours, at times recoils with things that people do to people, things that happen. You go, oh, Lord, how can that be? It's broken, folks. It's broken. So creation groans. We even who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for that coming day, the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body, that, that, that day in which things that are broken are finally healed. I use the term healed. Certainly that's often used regarding physical illnesses. You remember last week as we, um, preparation for Thanksgiving, thought together about Luke 17 11 through 19, and I mentioned to you that as Jesus walked among uh, us, 
uh, in his physical body, he healed the sick and raised the dead. I called that an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It was a glimpse. It was a foretaste of glory divine. As this songwriter would say, it's a bite. It's a bite of heaven. It's a bite of what we call in Bible terms the kingdom. He healed the sick and raised the dead. It was, a, it was like a taste of this, this day so described when, when, when those things will be no more. Um, in breaking of the kingdom, yes, indeed. So if you look at your notes, the fall, yes, creation groans. But I want you to notice that third element. I want you to, to, to see in the text that groaning and longing are woven together with hope. And please, this next sentence there, the Bible does not call us to live in a false world in which we pretend that everything is perfect today. It isn't perfect Christian faith does not call its adherents to live in denial of how bad things hurt. It does not just call you to cheer up, ye saints of God, there's nothing to worry about. That's an old chorus we sang when we were young, back when choruses were something else. All right, cheer up, ye saints of God, there's nothing to worry about. Well, sometimes there is. Um, and sometimes the joy of the Lord, um, well, is tempered. By difficulty, oh yes, joy, I know it goes deeper. I know it's not happiness. I got it. I heard that, heard that lesson. I'm just saying the Bible, the Bible does not call us to live in a false world where we pretend that we're okay when we're not. Okay? That, that should be of comfort to you. I remember reading on the back of some book. It wasn't a good one. It said something like this. How can real Christians be... Dis, be, be, be uh, be discouraged. How can real Christians be depressed? And I thought, oh boy, have I got issues with you. What kind of book are you writing? And what kind of world do you live in? And what kind of Christianity do you practice? Because I'm not sure it's recognizable in the Bible. No, in the real world, it is hard. In the real world, the walk of faith does come with discouragement and sometimes clinical depression. Some of you walked that road or are. Yeah, I get it. Uh, we, we get Oh my goodness sakes, wrung out, weary, tired. Some of the things that we all carry. The Bible doesn't call us to to live in a faith that says, oh no, it's perfect, because it isn't. The Bible does not call us to separate groaning and longing from hope. Now, and that's that business of hope we don't want to lose sight of. So verse 24, for in this hope we're saved. What hope? It's the hope that there's going to be a tomorrow where it isn't like this. So there's two groanings right there. There's another groaning shows up in verse 26, the third of the three. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God helps us in our weaknesses for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Sometimes we pray differently than what God would really want. We just want God to fix the problem. And, and just like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 you remember three times I prayed the Lord would take away this thorn in the flesh. We'll preach that in a few months. And three times God said, no, that thorn that I've given you, oh, dear Paul, I gave it to you because I love you and I'll help you carry it, but I won't take it away. Wow. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for the saints. That's verse 27, according to the will of God. Aren't you glad that the Spirit of God knows what to pray for regarding you and your problems and difficulties? He knows what to pray for better than you. That's kind of what that's saying. So three groanings, the creation groans, we groan. The Spirit of God 
in his, in his praying for us, he intercedes with us with groanings. The spirit here is the spirit of God. I don't, I don't believe it's our spirit. I think it's Holy Spirit, capital S, is reflected in most of your translations. Too deep for words. There's the third groan. And then, of course, those wonderful assurances of what God is about. Verse 28, of course, much loved, sometimes misused. But a wonderful, wonderful verse of assurance that God knows what he's doing. Part of what he's doing is conforming us to the image of Christ. That's verse 29. He's going to conform us to the image of Christ. He will. He will. He is. So creation groaning. Do you feel it? Do you feel the minor, the, the minor keys here? Do you feel the cello? Okay, take a deep breath. We're going to move ahead to Revelation. Okay? So, I just, I, I want you to make the jump with me to the final day. So, so, we're skipping a bit. We're skipping a whole number of things in terms of the playing out of future events. I know that. I got it. I've been doing it on purpose today because we want to go to that theme of he shall reign forever and ever. So, I go to Revelation, and we're going to read several texts here in Revelation, verse, uh, chapter 11, first of all. So we're, we're, the music is about to shift. <clears throat> and I realize we're missing a bit in the middle here, of course. The return of Jesus and so on. Tribulation and millennium. I, I know, I know, I know. We're, we're skipping ahead. But I think sometimes reading the end of the book, can't believe I'd say that. But reading the end of the book when it's the Bible is helpful. Okay. <laughs> Revelation 11. So hear the word of God. The seventh trumpet, starting verse, verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, loud voices, shouting, I'm assuming, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The next word should be, hallelujah. That's right. Handel, I think. Thank you for that. The 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, and your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, this text, as with others that we're going to read uh, in just a couple of minutes, they take us right into the presence of God in heaven. And I think it's very instructive to say, what are the people in the presence of God singing about? And what are they praising? What have they noticed? By the way, I think as John, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the name of the book. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Read it in chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll figure out the title of the book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. And so John is a recipient of this. And I think he's listening to words from heaven. That's what I think he's getting. He's getting like a, I think he's listening to the real thing. You might say, well, it's like a teaser. I think he's getting a teaser, but I think he's listening to the real thing. I think he's hearing voices, the crowd in heaven, shouting, as we'll see in a few minutes, millions upon millions. If you know Jesus, your voice will be among them. Perhaps John popped his head into heaven right next to you. 
Maybe, maybe someday you'll see this. Oh, that's John. He's getting the revelation. Well, that's cool. And he heard you singing. I don't know. But you'll notice here, as in other places, the justice of God is part of what is praised about him. Isn't that interesting? Today, we, we are in a quandary about this. Don't tell me you're not. Most people are. On the one hand, we think of the horror of hell, indeed. Uh, some today have wanted to rewrite theology, rewrite the Bible to say, well, it just doesn't mean that. And it does. The Bible's really clear on that. I do not buy any attempt today to rewrite the Bible and get rid of the doctrine of hell. Awful. Terrible to think about. Uh, motivating, should motivate us to do everything possible to keep people from going there. But the place I say where we wrestle with it is this. Um, some of you find this easier to enter into because you've been hurt more deeply. But some of you know what it's like to long for justice and to say within your heart, one day God will take care of it. The justice described in Revelation is God taking care of it. And for many, sometimes again, quandaries, moral quandaries, no, it, for you to say, and no, I don't want God to just say, oh, it's okay. I want justice to be done here. I mean, this was terrible. And the book of Revelation gives clear insight into this. There is a day of judgment and justice. Mercy and grace and judgment all come together in the book of Revelation. So on your sermon notes... I'm saying this. Can you hear the music? It's not a minor key. Go to Revelation 19. Let's hear it again. Let's hear it again. Revelation 19. I'm going to start at verse 6. We're going to bounce around just a little bit here in Revelation. Here's the the big multitude. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out. So great multitude. It sounds like a waterfall. The sound of peals of thunder, and they're crying out. You picture this? What are they saying? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. There, exclamation mark. If there are, if there are symbols, Dave, here's your cue. Uh, clash those symbols. Don't hold back. Don't say, is it too loud? It won't be. The Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride, that would be the church, has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, that's the angel that's John's tour guide at the moment. He said, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, it's going to be a really good day. It's going to be a really good day. Those people are blessed. I think you could say capital B-L-E-S-S-E-D, bold, underlined, shout it, blessed. Truly joyful, truly at peace are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In other words, take that to the bank. Blessed are those who are invited. That is those who are coming. Now, There's coming a day of final victory, I'm wanting us to hear. And second bullet point there on your sermon notes, there's coming a day when God's justice will be obvious even in judgment. 
God's justice will be obvious, and it will be a matter of praise for the people of God. Appropriate praise to God for his justice, even as we praise him in other settings for his mercy and grace. So in that day, we will praise him for his righteous judgment. And I offer as proof texts that are here, and these are just selected meaning there's more to come. I read Revelation 15, 3 and 4, for this crowd in the presence of God, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You see the praise of God for who he is. They're not singing, praise, oh God, the streets of gold are pretty cool. The streets of gold are the minor, are the minor thing. That's not the main thing. The praise is due to the one who sits on the throne. Great and mighty are your works. You are king of the nations. Who, who would not fear you? Look, you alone are holy. With, all through creation, God's people, the angels, the cherubim, as you know, Isaiah 6, all of these, never tire from crying out about the wonder of what God is like. Holy, 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 never ceases to be shouted in the courts of heaven. Wow. Chapter 16, verse 4. another moment of judgment and I realize I'm jumping around chronologically but I'm after uh, what is said and so we read the angel in verse 5 in charge of the waters who says this just are you O holy one who is and who was for you brought these judgments so the judgments didn't just happen no a just God brings them do you see this Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. That is, this is truly just in judgment. And I heard the altar, even inanimate objects, saying, yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And then the fourth angel, as you read in verse 8 Verse 9, people scorched by the fierce heat, cursed the name of God. They, they didn't repent. Do you see this? As God's judgment is poured out, rather than softening the hearts of those who've refused him, it hardens their hearts. They did not repent and give him glory. Sometimes we think, oh, a little bit of judgment, they would repent. No, they didn't. They don't. Verse 9, again in verse 11, and they did not repent of their deeds. Wow, God's just judgment. Chapter 19 and verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cry out, that is this great multitude, hallelujah, hallelujah. The justice of God plays 
loud and clear in the courts of heaven. Well, there's a lot more we could say. (laughs) I've got another half hour of material, I think. Um, But suffice it for today. Yes, we live in Romans 8, a day when we groan. But we look ahead to another day that is coming as surely as today is here. When it will be evident that he shall reign forever and ever. When Christ will have reigned until all of his enemies are under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15. And then these days that we've read about in Revelation. When the multitudes in the presence of God sing hallelujah. For the Lord our God the almighty reigns. The end of the story. Now I want to say these three things then. If you look at your sermon notes. First of all, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Yes, I know we're not home yet. I know that. I got the memo. I live in the world, same world you do, that hurts way too much at times. I know we live in a broken world. The music often today still plays in the minor keys, but be encouraged because the God who will one day bring all things to the conclusion that he has ordained still holds you in his hands today. He does. He's got it, and he's got you. Don't doubt it. Second, be there. Not only be encouraged, but be there. I'm saying this to every one of us, to everyone listening online. I know plenty of parents who are praying for kids who seem to have walked away to get themselves back right with God, if you please. And if that's you in this room or somewhere else, you get your little self right back with God now. You do that. Okay? Be be there. On this day, not because you earned it or decided to turn over a new leaf and be nicer. You don't have a chance of that. See, you need to repent and trust Christ as your savior from sin. Trust Christ in him alone as the one who bore your sin. You get right back with God. If that's the place you used to be and you've wandered, you get yourself right back. And it's as simple as you having a conversation with God right here today. God, I've, I know where I used to be. I'm not there anymore. Would you help me figure out the way back? And you, you do it and you mean it. But I'm saying on this great and final day when millions are, are saying, hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns, you be there in that crowd. Be in that crowd. Trusting Christ is your Savior from sin. And finally, be at peace, dear people of God. At this holiday season, I know the pain that often comes from empty chairs Pictures we look at as we remember other days that are not like today. I know. But be at peace. Be at peace. Because the Prince of Peace, that is Jesus himself, still rules and reigns. And one day in full crescendo is the music of heaven plays in that day. This year, our play, The Peace of Heaven, will help us think about these things. I hope you know Christ. I hope his peace rules in your heart today. I want to pray for us. Would you stand with me, please, as we do that? Father, I thank you for your people today. You know us, everyone. You know the details of our hearts, the details of our lives, the things that this past year, the past week, have brought sorrow and difficulty. And you know the things, even collectively, through a life. I know sometimes there's just a life that just seems to hurt every time it turns around. And Father, you know, you know those things, those burdens that people carry, even who've walked in here today. I I, I pray for your grace and your strength for each who feels that load. 
And you'd turn us to you, the only one who can be our peace and our strength today. And at the very same time that we walk this path of groaning, we thank you that there is coming a day indeed that will look very different from today when you will wrap up all things according to the plan that you have. And we will join the crowds, the millions in the presence of God saying hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Until that day, Father, give us grace. Thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.